Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie, or follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Today, we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Connor McCabe. Dr. McCabe is a researcher and an author, and we've had Connor on the show before. If you go back to on our website, you can find episode 10, where Connor talks about the history of the Southern Irish state, the economic history. It's a very interesting uh, episode. I think it's one of the better ones that we've done. It's really worth a listen. And today we're going to be covering a lot of those same topics and maybe looking at the 2008 banking crash, the austerity that we faced afterwards, and maybe some of Connor's ideas about where the future lies for the Irish economy in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Connor, you're very welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much for, for having me back on. It's always a joy. So thanks very much. Now, one of the things we looked at in our last episode with you was the financialization, I think might be the right word, of the Irish economy and how that led to perhaps the exposure of the Irish economy for the 2008 crash. But could you talk about the Celtic Tiger period and what perhaps Ireland's role was in a wider EU and perhaps international economy? Sure. I mean, I'll start off by maybe just kind of flagging that, that like my approach to history, I, I don't know whether it's different to others. I don't study history as a kind of linear, progressive event, one after the other. For me, history, it's more spatial than it is directional. That when we look back at history, we're looking at a very broad canvas, like a kind of landscape where there are different kind of events, different things kind of going on, which have as much of a role in the present as you did in their own present. For example, there recently, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, said that um, at the outbreak of COVID-19, he said that Ireland was in a good position because of the last 10, 12 years, because of all of the austerity our finances were now in a good position and we had uh, monies and just been able to borrow to tackle this kind of event not realizing it was those years of austerity and decades of having a kind of two-tier kind of health system which led the state to not have the type of investment in health to do anything but a massive shutdown in order to avoid overwhelming the HSE he cannot say at one point there are decades of underinvestment in our health service has led us to shut down the entire country because our health system just cannot cope with even a moderate outbreak of COVID-19. He then sees that as a virtue because they somehow going to save money. So when we look at kind of today, it's not a case of we're looking at events in the past and how they shaped us where they are. They are just as kind of relevant as the war back then, as they are now. That's a long way around of saying that it's a vaguely kind of Marxist way of, of seeing history. So it's not about events, but it's about parallelations. And that history gives us a canvas that is wide enough and deep enough to observe deep social forces in motion. It's kind of what I try to do in my books, and hopefully I can try and get that across kind of today. If we look at in the 1980s, where, where Ireland kind of moves from one form of foreign direct investment that was more kind of factory based into one that's more financial services based, this starts to shape how the state thinks about economics, how it thinks about finance, how it thinks about its own role in the world. And the real kind of element of that, the more kind of physical element of that is the IFSC. With the setup in like 1987 under Charles Hartley led kind of government, although uh, signs of it had been put in place under the previous Fine Gael Labour administration. So, what happens there is that um, Ireland starts to really kind of embark on this kind of loose kind of regulation, tax haven type kind of model as a form of investment by the 92 to 93 we start having um, a so-called jobless recovery where on paper Ireland is doing kind of quite well, GDP is up. These figures are being distorted by the financial flows that are starting to really kind of have an impact on the national kind of accounts. So 
the phrase kind of Celtic Tiger, it's, it's coined around kind of this time, and it was coined in relation to the banks. And the banks were seen to be a good bet in Ireland because of the financial flows uh, that were happening. But there wasn't really kind of any kind of job growth as such at that time. Job growth starts to take off in the mid to late 1990s, and it's mainly in construction and services. So when the housing boom uh, starts kind of taking off, that's when you get this kind of second, third wave of, of the so-called Celtic Tiger. But it's a build-up of debt happening all the way kind of through this. From around 2002 onwards, 2002 until 2008, there's what I would see as the greatest misallocation of capital spend in the state's history, where there are tens of billions, uh, hundreds of billions, is put into many kind of commercial property where you have a very small number of the commercial property sites in the state, but there are large bids coming in from very few players and all the banks get involved. So it's mainly Anglo and it's mainly Irish nationwide. But then AIB and to a small degree, Bank of Ireland also try and get into this. And what they're doing is that they're chasing not the investment, but the price of the asset at the end. So they're all betting on what they think the um, office block or the building site will go for rather than what products will be made there, what services will be done there. So it's a it's an asset bubble that is coming up and all the banks get dragged in to kind of various kind of degrees. How they're funding this is mainly through foreign borrowings. So this is how they're doing it, mainly from Britain. There was a trend afterwards for trying to say that the bank bailout was really a bailout of like German banks and French banks and all that. In Ireland, that wasn't really the case. And most of the foreign funds that are coming into the Irish banks are coming in via via England mainly. So what happens in like 2007 is that these international financial markets, these start to freeze up. So the banks, which had been rolling over their debt by borrowing kind of more monies, suddenly can't borrow kind of more monies to pay off earlier kind of borrowings. So they're a bit stuck and foreign investors or those who are trading in the credit, they're looking at what Irish banks are putting this credit into. They're putting it in, into kind of commercial property, into housing as well. And you just go, this is not kind of sustainable. So it dries up. And uh, when Lehman Brothers like, collapses on the 15th of September, 2008, those entire financial markets just freeze. They're just going to shut down. So, so the bank at the time that was most exposed was it was Anglo-Irish Bank. If it didn't meet its ongoing kind of debts by the 30th of like September, it would have been deemed to be kind of bankrupt. So the state kind of moves in and it, it gives a kind of guarantee. At first, the talk was for a guarantee just for Anglo-Irish Bank and for Irish Nationwide, but the other banks kicked up. And the reason being was that they're all investing in the same small number of the commercial properties. So if one falls, then they all fall. So they go for a blanket guarantee, which which wasn't done anywhere else. The blanket guarantee was, was for 400 billion. It ends up costing us gross around 64 billion. And the net figure will be around 30 to 32 billion. The difference being there is that there's around 30 billion that's a complete write-off it will never see again and there's another 30 to like 24 billion that went into NAMA and NAMA should return most of that money this year with about 4 billion extra so the net loss will be around 30 billion which will will be paying off to at least kind of 2054 but then that's what kicks in with kind of austerity because in order to cover this debt and the debt repayments on it the Irish state cut, 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 cut so much that here we are 10 years later in a housing, health and infrastructure crisis. And then on top of that, it then arrives kind of COVID-19. So we know that the health crisis and the housing crisis and the infrastructure transport crisis is to the mind of the voters here because that's what happened in the February 2020 general election. So those issues have to be sorted out. Then we have the big kind of climate action issue as well, which needs to be sorted out at the latest by kind of 2030. And then we got COVID-19 then as well. So there's a meeting of like three kind of pressure points at the moment 
two of which are like historical and are based around how the state operates, how it thinks, who it benefits, who it doesn't. So now we're sitting here now with these three elements all together and a caretaker kind of government. Um, it sounds kind of depressing. I find it quite exciting because these moments do open up kind of possibilities. Connor, going back to the historical side of things, you have something you've written before is that Ireland doesn't fit very well into this uh, interpretation of neoliberalism in the West because Ireland didn't dismantle its welfare state in this period. It actually expanded it in, in the Celtic Tiger era for the first time. Uh, so how does Ireland book the trend there? How is it different from other countries? I also say kind of somewhere else that, that when neoliberalism showed up in Ireland in the late 1980s, Ireland just said, what took you so long, lads? We've been doing this since like 1922. Ireland expands its welfare kind of system in the 1980s and, and the 1990s. It's true. But its ideology of what the state is, who it serves, hasn't changed since the 1920s. Like there was a kickback when like, Fianna Fáil uh, won in like 1932. And, and probably from 32 to 35, that was a chance where the deeply ingrained kind of post-colonial forces in the state could have been taken on. But Fianna Fáil didn't go there. So then they kind of settled down then into it. I mean, Ireland, it's a corporate state, really, you know, the kind of defining ideology even even of the trade union movement is more catholic social teaching than it is marxism or even kind of socialism and that goes into the history of the state in, in the history of the left in the history of the workers colleges that were run by the jesuits in the 1950s even kind of sociology here in ireland is set up for us in minute by the priests and that was a move done to kind of block any kind of more kind of progressive uh, thinking coming in by uh, you know by kind of sociology so the strand of, of neoliberalism, which arrives in the 1980s and the 1990s, isn't a case of finding deep kind of fertile ground in Ireland. It's something that had already been here. If, for example, when Thatcher moves to sell off public housing in like 1979, Ireland had started doing that 12 years previously. So we had actually been doing that since, since 1967, 68, you know. But... I think I get the impression that people kind of think that we followed Thatcher in like selling off public housing and really Thatcher was kind of late to the game. I mean, that's kind of one example of where kind of Ireland is like, but like sometimes I think that that kind of post-colonial self-hatred, you know, or kind of self-loathing, which runs through kind of Irish people doesn't allow us the uh, freedom to actually embrace our kind of neoliberal history and actually say that we were actually trendsetters in terms of being kind of neoliberal way before anyone else was so that's where i get kind of problematic is instead of looking at the actual dynamics of irish capitalism which i find fascinating i've, I've dedicated i don't know 20 years nearly because you know it, it just to kind of research in it i find absolutely fascinating but it's different from british kind of capitalism and from american capitalism and from european ones that's down to our kind of colonial history, how that formed, how that formed into the institutions that are still alive today, like finance, the deal of central bank, like the the weight of the colonial history in Ireland is like still there. Like in in 1922, Ireland breaks, like politically, well the South does breaks uh, breaks politically from the Westminster, but not economically. It's completely the same. There's no break really until the 1970s. So the interests in Ireland, the class interests in Ireland are a bit truncated. They're a bit different from how we can analyse class interests in Britain because the class interests here that really kind of dominate is that class that acts as an intermediary there between foreign capital and, and the resources of the Irish state, a class that I call a, a kind of compradore class. So for me, that kind of intermediary class is, is, is really the starting point, I think, for any kind of real deep analysis of, of kind of Irish kind of capitalism. And it is there, like this idea again, that kind of capitalism shows up in Ireland with kind of Sean Lamas in the 1950s when it like started in factories. Such a reductive, narrow and very British view of what kind of capitalism is. It's industry and it's coronation street and that's what it is. No kind of no real kind of taking on board or kind of analysis of the rural kind of working class in Ireland, the, the kind of landless labourers, how that all works out, small farmers, 
up to kind of 50 acres in the in the 1930s and like 40s. And these, and these kind of dynamics are still playing out kind of today because in the 1980s and the 1990s, that class, that kind of rancher, big farmer class, elements of it sees the writing on the wall in terms of, of that kind of element of it. And you move into uh, finance. The perfect example of this is the former Taoiseach, John Bruton. Bruton was Taoiseach, wasn't he? Yeah, he was Taoiseach in the Rainbow Government, I think, 94 to 97. That was it, yeah. Sure, like, John Bruton is a big kind of meat farmer, a rancher. And now he's the, you know, he's the spokesperson stroke ambassador for the IFSC. His own move from, like, cattle ranching into kind of high finance in many ways parallels the moves by that class all the way through. What they trade now is not cattle. What they trade now is the ability of a nation state to set its own tax laws and have them then then kind of recognized internationally. And it's very, very profitable for them. But for me, that's what I find fascinating about Irish kind of capitalism. It's that kind of corporate intermediary capitalism, which is ideal for finance capitalism, because I mean, it's just made for it. And that's where I find kind of fascinating about it. And you cannot analyze that class nor that kind of intermediary dynamic by looking at British capitalism, American capitalism, British neoliberalism, and then just seeing, well, can we then slap that on top of this landscape that is kind of Irish history? I don't think we can. I don't think it's boring to do that. It's much more interesting just to look at kind of Irish capitalism because it is different. And um, it is, um, it's a, it, it brings a lot to the table in terms of kind of analysing it. Well, one of the interesting things I think you touched on in one of your talks, and I wasn't aware of this, that when the Troika came in, they offered to facilitate a less swinging type of uh, austerity for the Irish people as a whole if the Irish government was willing to look at its corporate tax rates and mm-hmm. they weren't willing to do that. And it seems funny that the Irish establishment are so pro-EU in a lot of ways and it's almost a heresy to criticise the EU. But the one area where they are willing to really get up on their hind legs and fight the EU is about the corporate tax rates. Yes, exactly. And like even even with Apple, I mean, Apple is a great example of it. You know, I mean, like the Apple story is kind of complicated because there are really two broad elements to Apple's kind of presence here in Ireland. One is the physical presence in, in Cork. It implies up to three to maybe kind of 5,000 people. The figures keep on changing, but it's certainly in the thousands in a relatively kind of small city. And then there's the kind of financial element of it. That is just a, it's a brass play here, you know, and you could actually move that kind of brass play element out of the Irish kind of jurisdiction and not have any effect on any climate kind of whatsoever. But that's not how the politicians in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil mainly play it. They go, they're sneaky. So to use the emotional weight of the physical jobs as if as if the a financial kind of puppetry is a threat to them. It's not. It's two different elements of the of the applicant operation. They they won't breach it kind of whatsoever because it's a gold mine for those intermediary tax haven kind of businesses, which are mainly accountancy and law, um, and also in the uh, deal those kind of civil servants who end up in the in the private sector thereafter. The whole revolving door that's there between finance and the NTMA, you know, and the Taoiseach's office and and the private sector and NAMR as well. Has been covered by some good journalists, but like very few, but it is there. But again, not to focus in on the people themselves, how I see this is really in terms of this class, this kind of corporate the middleman class that has its roots, I reckon now I really start seeing it starting to emerge with the with you know with the rise of the Irish kind of middle class post famine. So with the rise of the Irish kind of Catholic kind of middle class from about the eighteen fifties onwards, eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties, they're really consolidating themselves. That's where I see them now today, and it's one big block you cannot understand that class by looking at 
British capitalism. You cannot understand it because it doesn't have that class. We do. So this is where Irish history becomes hugely important for understanding politics on today because those dynamics, those power relations, they're real and they're playing out even in terms of how COVID will like play out, how it's playing out at the moment and how it'll play out in the future. But just to go back to my earlier point a little bit, like one another way where Ireland is different from a lot of Western countries is inequality has actually shrunk in Ireland, which is the opposite of what's happening in, in most Western countries uh, since the 80s, mostly, I believe, through transfers. So it's kind of, that's an anomaly as well, I think, no? Well, I mean, I would I would question that. I mean, I would question those figures. I mean, like I know that, um, that the head of the Fiscal Advisory Council, he's been pushing this, that, you know, this is the real difference. Wealth is not measured in Ireland. We don't measure wealth at all. There's no measurement of wealth. There's a measurement of wage income. There's some element of maybe kind of shareholdings or kind of stocks and shares. But wealth is not measured here. So we do not know how much those who are wealthy are worth. So how can we compare? I mean, this is all based on transfers in terms of subsidies for kind of low wages, which is really what our social welfare system is, is like torn into. There's nothing but unique there. I mean, that's that's a that's something that we certainly have in common with the way that the British uh, yeah, the social welfare system is being used and even how what's left of the US one. Uh, the social welfare system isn't there primarily as a safety net, but really as a as a subsidy for a low wage economy. That's why our pre-tax transfers or pre-kind of welfare transfers, Ireland is a deeply unequal kind of society. But after those transfers, that gap kind of shortens. Two things there is that wages are like so low, and that's why it like drops after after kind of social transfers. And secondly, we don't know how much wealth there is in the state anyway. So how can we compare? No, I, I, I really don't buy those arguments about how there's less kind of inequality now and Ireland's gotten better in the last kind of 15, kind of 20 years because we're not actually looking at the wealth in the state because it's simply not measured. Well, I was just curious in terms of the Celtic Tiger, and we were talking back there about the 1980s. I think most people who, even when they were children in the early 80s and the mid 80s, were aware of the recession and were aware of the effects that the cutbacks were having and stuff like that. Were those cutbacks ever really addressed during the Celtic Tiger? Were they, in terms of the cuts to education and health and hospital beds, were they rectified during the period of the Celtic Tiger? Well, I mean, what kind of jumps out there for me is that, like, you know, what's your benchmark? Is your benchmark an increase in spending or is your, or, or is your benchmark an, an increase in, in, in those who have kind of access to these kind of services and, and actually these services feeding into a more holistic, a more kind of um, thriving kind of livelihood, you know? Like there was certainly an increase in spend in these areas. And certainly in in kind of education, there was a like education is certainly one where there has been an increase until the mid two thousands. There was a there was a large increase in kind of working class people going to electoral level, and then going on and doing kind of more then afterwards. But the composition of jobs in Ireland didn't really change kind of that much, and the wage levels relative to each other rather than to a benchmark in the past didn't really change either, you know. I suppose kind of what I'm saying is that obviously there's more money in the state now than there was in the 1980s, but I don't live with 1980s uh, costs. I live with 2020 costs. So in terms of rents, in terms of childcare, in terms of uh, transport, in terms of housing, in terms of, of health cover, in all these areas, it's hard to see how an argument can be made that Ireland is a more equal society now than it was 20, 30 years ago, and it wasn't equal even then. Well, another big difference from that time is a lot of the working class now is composed of people who come from other countries. And what effect do you think that's had on, on Ireland and its economy? I'd see it as being fairly neutral, to be quite honest, because I just see it 
as an increase in kind of population. Like when more people enter into an economy, the economy doesn't shrink, it grows. That's what happens with it. It's not a case of more people equals less a share of an already static, of some kind of static cake. If that was the case, then then London would be a much poorer city than Dublin because it's a much bigger city. I'd see it as a, it's a it's an increase in kind of population which any state can easily kind of absorb and and take. There's more people in it. There's more people working. There's more kind of demand for services, which means more jobs. So overall, it's a it's an extremely kind of positive thing, you know. Like you know, we've suffered from emigration so so badly on this island. Even now, this island has a lower population than it did back in, you know, in like 1845, I, I don't think there's any other state or part of Europe where the population is lower now than it was 170, 180 years ago. So there's more people kind of coming in. The breakdown of it is, yeah, is there's a lot of English people here. <laughs> um, so like, you know, it's not just this view of, of what kind of immigrants are. Any kind of increase like it's fairly neutral in terms of you know its economic effect and more people means more activity and it means kind of uh, more growth and i think that's been shown in ireland well one of the things throughout irish history as you just mentioned there connor one of the recurring themes is emigration and mm. in the 1980s we had huge levels of emigration the 50s and then again in 2008 and the aftermath yeah. of that and so many people going mm. to Australia and different places. This is going to be a lot different perhaps with COVID-19 that perhaps countries like Australia and Britain won't be too keen on large numbers of immigrants arriving or perhaps even people living in Ireland won't fancy going abroad to that extent. But it could be a different scenario than what we've faced in the past and how could that affect the response to the economic decline that we're facing. Well, I mean, this really gets into what type of response shall we have? I mean, Brian Jr. was famous for the line, we all partied. His, his father was famous for the line, we can't all live in this small island. Disgraceful, disgusting thing for any, for any kind of Irish minister to say of his fellow citizens. He was basically saying, fuck off, lads, you know. But they can't do that now. So they can't just say, he's never just like, fuck off, lads, you know. So what that means then is that the type of response that we have in this state to COVID-19 and to the and to the drop-off in like GDP is to have a job-led recovery. So that would mean then kind of looking at policies that would prioritise the real economy, those in services, those in production. And not so much those in the more kind of rentier kind of capitalism element, which is kind of landlords and banks, as they tend to do. Like the three largest costs of sort of wages for any kind of company tends to be, on average, it's the commercial rates, it's rents and it's insurance. If you want to have a jobs led kind of recovery, then those three need to be tackled. Now, the government has done something on the commercial rates it has frozen any kind of demand for them for or any kind of call on those payments for like 12 months. You still have to pay them back, but just not fucking 12 months. But in terms of, of like commercial rents and insurance cover, there's been no movement kind of whatsoever. It just last week we saw Bewley's uh, having to uh, just announcing that it's going to close kind of permanently on Graben Street because uh, Johnny Ronan, who was bailed out by Anama, um, is charging a 1.5 million in rent every year. There are around 244,000 firms that have been affected by COVID-19. It's around 80% of all firms in the state. At the moment, around 50% of the working population is on some form of income kind of support, like job seekers benefit, the COVID-19 payment or the furloughed staff. So we have half of our, of our working population who's not working. It's just not working. It's not around kind of twenty eight percent of them are deemed to be unemployed, but it's up to half are actually just not working at the moment. If we want them back up, then someone's got to lose out. But this really gets into just the nature 
of the state itself and not just kind of politicians, but in terms of how the finance thinks, how the Department of Business thinks, how the Taoiseach's office thinks. And what they think is, let's protect the uh, banks. And that can be seen with the schemes that have been put forward so far. Like, the government, apart from uh, the wage kind of subsidies, the government has focused in on business supports being loans, basically. So once these 244,000 firms to borrow money in order to pay off their landlords and their insurance cover and our kind of loans that are there, for banks as well. That's going to be a disaster because as you rightly can point out, there'll be no there'll be no kind of emigration kind of this time. So we need to have a jobs led kind of recovery, which means put kind of supports that will help businesses get back up again, get people employed again, and also to increase wages. 70% of all non-finance businesses in Ireland are like SMEs. They employ less than 250 people and the vast majority of them employ less than like 50 people. And they're mostly in like non-export sectors or, or they, they don't actually export. If we have a so-called export-led recovery, we'll be back to the 1990s with a jobless kind of recovery. The GDP figure will go up, but there'll still be hundreds of thousands of people under those. This needs to be a jobs-led kind of recovery. That needs to be focused. But the history, not just the, the history, but the nature of that class here in Ireland and the depth of its tentacles in the fabric of the state itself would lead me to believe that we'd, we would certainly have a fight on our hands if we were to uh, try that or to try to like, take them on. Well, one thing we can sort of see with America at the moment is that you're seeing a, a massive transfer of wealth and public wealth to the very tops of society. And you have things like casino operators and cruise ship lines and airlines getting massive amounts of public money and ordinary people who are out of work are getting one $1,200 check. And I wonder if this is going to be the case in Ireland as well, that we're going to see massive amounts of public money being diverted towards the wealthiest sections of Ireland rather than the ordinary people. And one thing we may have seen is regards to private hospitals. And I remember when this happened a couple of weeks ago, there's people in America going, look, even Ireland under a right-wing government is nationalizing the private uh, healthcare system. And mm -hmm. this wasn't the case at all, was it? No, I mean, you know, we are renting those kind of 19 hospitals from private operators and renting their staff as well. These staff are still private. It's looking at private kind of contracts there for them. But nevertheless, I think a Rubicon has been crossed when they did that because um, since the 1950s, they've been telling us that private property rights supersede any other rights. It's, it's the Constitution, sorry, lads. And then going back to the HSE, in order to save its blushes, because it is woefully unprepared after decades of cuts to pay off kind of bank debt. It was in no position for any kind of COVID-19 response that it needed to get those kind of extra beds. And it just went in and told them, hey, we're taking these over. Here's a contract and sign on the line or we'll just kind of take them anyway. So they will go back to them. They will go back to those owners. but. I don't know how much the public will buy any kind of argument that's made now saying that they should go back under private control. Once they've done it now, it's very hard for them to kind of make arguments kind of against it. Same goes with like childcare. Childcare costs in this country are astronomical. They're completely insane. And with kind of social kind of distancing uh, rules that, that, that will be kind of coming in, there's going to be less children in each of those kind of crashes, which means kind of less money for the private operators. They're going to have to have some form of a state-run service, be it through kind of state employees for these kind of providers. That then gets into, once you start bringing on more and more, you know, of these um, investments on, onto the Garish Purse, it then brings into sharp focus, well, can we really maintain this tax haven setup? Can we really keep on carrying on by not by not kind of measuring wealth or seeing what is kind of Irish wealth doing? Can we really still 
carry on giving tax exemptions to uh, tax exiles. I mean, that's one of the first things they did was to suspend the kind of resident uh, rule for your Dennis O'Briens and for your Dermot Desmonds. You could probably be stuck here and, and maybe here more than, than the amount of days that they need to be here for in order to avoid kind of paying tax. So then these questions kind of come in and that, that's going to be quite uncomfortable for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Greens. So I do think that there's a fight there, but I do think some of the battles are certainly kind of winnable. But it will come down to, do we continue with this kind of low-wage, low-tax, tax-haven system? Or do we start taking on that Compador class and a handy number it has carved out for itself over decades on this island? And do we actually kind of finally kind of take them on? And how about the international climate? Like, for example, uh, President Trump in America has talked about bringing back companies that are based in Ireland, including in Ireland, uh, back to America. Do you think this will really happen or will really have an impact? No, no, I I don't because just because it sounds like just a usual kind of Donald Trump. He's worried about in November and he's just saying stuff. It ties into his economic kind of nationalism, you know, his kind of view of it. Even the likes of Macron, though, has recently been making noises like this, that we have to be self-sufficient and so on. So maybe post-COVID, it might it might be more prevalent. It might be, but like, you know, I mean, you need to be self-sufficient in the things that you can be self-sufficient in. And then there's other things where you trade. The biggest fault line in Irish industry, in Irish business, it's not entrepreneurship, it's not ideas. There are loads of them. Going back to that figure of 70%, of all employment is with kind of SMEs and something like 93% of like SMEs don't actually export. Now, that's because there's been no buildup of the indigenous export uh, sector in this state outside of, kind of agriculture, really. It's all been about importing exporters and then having them as an exporters. And that's why a handful, uh, mainly in kind of pharmaceuticals, account for a huge amount of our actual kind of exports. That's down to the fact that the indigenous Irish companies that could be export-led has never been the focus of Enterprise Ireland or the IDA. It's all been about either bringing in companies from outside and having them export in order to beef up our kind of GDP kind of figures, or you get a small company you build it up until it gets to a standard that it could trade internationally. And then you wait for the big guys to show up and buy out that company. So you have all these great kind of Irish companies that are actually caught in that zone where they're big enough to trade internationally, but not big enough to avoid getting bought over or being offered the owners to be tempted to go for the buyout. It's not actually that different. And I'm not being flippant, but it's not that different from the home farm a model in terms of football where home farm acts as a as an academy for kind of young kind of footballers who then end up as just if they're 14 15 don't end up kind of playing here but end up playing in england you know because they're kind of bought up and they're and they're shipped out you know um irish companies indigenous companies that's kind of the like same thinking so that's why we have a, a very weak indigenous export sector there's no other reason for it and there's no other excuse for it but just that has not been the focus of that competitor class who are much more interested in getting in foreign companies and having those contracts yeah i mean it's interesting you bring up the football analogy and i don't know how how widely you can use it but one thing that strikes me as a league of ireland fan actually is that like it's not really viable anymore though you know like um the irish players don't get the breaks in england because they're exposed to competition from the whole world you know in terms of players Mm. Right. I'm not sure how how uh, how far you can push that analogy, but it's an interesting one because that's something that's increasingly not viable for people to do anymore. Well, you know, yeah, yes, yes, you know, you know, and it is an analogy only. It's only just there just to give kind of a some kind of view of it. But it is certainly the case where our startups, again, it's a scandal because there's millions, uh, tens of millions of like public funds via our third level institutions or kind of sector that goes into into kind of startup those startups if they come kind of viable international operations or if they seem to be are then kind of bought out and the owners think it's great another kind of analogy and i suppose one that kind of speaks kind of 
more to the business side of it, but it's a bit like when we used to export live cattle. So we'd raise cattle until they were like two years of age and then to ship them over to England where they were slaughtered and then turned into real money. All the real money is, is been made in like Britain is been made here by uh, by just raising them, but we just kept on raising them, just kept on raising kind of these cattle. Not actually thinking of actually building kind of slaughterhouses here until the nineteen seventies, uh sixties and, and like seventies. So we have this view now and it's a it's a kind of a common sense here that we can't export and we have to bring in kind of foreign companies to export for us. It's going, no, this is this was a conscious kind of decision done since the nineteen sixties not to really put any kind of money into indigenous companies, but just keep on bringing in foreign companies because it was just seen as like easy money for that class. Uh, that's a structural problem, not just in terms of investment, but in terms of mentalities. It's a huge block in terms of how IDA, Enterprise Ireland, Department of Business thinks. They really do genuinely think that Apple is like our exports. And they call it, like you have kind of ministers saying our exports. We're talking about pharmacemicals, like American and and the Canadian owned pharmacemicals, as if they're our exports, they're not. You mentioned agriculture there. How does agriculture fit into the modern economy, modern Irish economy in that case? Well, I mean, it's one of our like in terms of jobs, it's one of our largest. It's still a very important like sector. There's around 12, 10 to twelve billion. This is all kind of pre-COVID. It's around ten to twelve billion in agricultural exports every year from Ireland, that supports around 150,000 jobs. So on paper, it seems like a low figure, but it's hugely important in terms of jobs. Um, you have, if you look at kind of pharmacemicals, where you have something like 80 to 90 billion, this is just from memory, so excuse if it's not kind of on the ball, but like ballpark, their exports, equate to around i think around 80 billion and they employ around thirty-five thousand people so if we want to tackle kind of these things it also means kind of they're realizing that agriculture has a role and plays a role in the Irish society in in terms of having jobs where there's nothing else in those counties or like in those areas in terms of like climate action there's no doubt that the cattle herd needs to be kind of tackled. But this is where it gets into the class kind of dynamics in farming itself. But where's the family farm at the moment that is being kind of squeezed as there's more and more investment turned into the factory farms that are being kind of set up here, especially in terms of milk and beef. In terms of a more sustainable agricultural uh, system, there are kind of models there in terms of high quality family farm based products that are being kind of put forward again that that requires investment and also kind of taking on the big farmers and and the factory farmers and that whole kind of sector well connor one of the phrases that i think we all associate with 2008 and the austerity years is there is no alternative Mm. And this was repeated ad nauseum, particularly with the, the state broadcaster and the newspapers. Do you think in the wake of COVID-19 and what lies ahead of us, possibly, that there's more space, and particularly with the Internet and things, to raise those type of questions that you're talking about? And particularly, you rarely hear the type of argument that you're making about the actual structure of the economy and things to do with exports and what businesses are supported by government. They're rarely heard on the national airwaves. Do you think there will be a very ready audience waiting to hear these type of arguments in the future? Um, well, I mean, just on that, like like my arguments probably aren't heard because they might be just like bash you crazy. <laughs> so, so just to kind of put that out there, I don't think they are. Well, you know, who knows? But if they're not, yeah, I think that there is kind of more of an appetite there. One of the things that has really kind of given me hope is that the generation that's out there now is absolutely amazing. They take no crap from the whatsoever. If you look at the under 25s, under 30s in Ireland today, they brought us equal marriage. They brought us kind of abortion and they smashed the like two party system. <laughs> and they're not even 30 yet. 
Um, you know, so like it's an incredible a generation. My generation messed up and we did fuck all, you know, apart from just like white books and moan all the time. There's definitely a sea change out there. And um, whether or not my arguments are being heard or I don't think really matters to them or to anyone else. They've got their own ideas and they'll listen to themselves. Thank you very much. And it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. So I think kind of what gives me hope is that there is a there's a whole generation out there now that has shown that it's up for the fight. It's up for it. So I think that would be interesting. And I think that more ideas will be kind of put out there purely because they've shown that they're not going to accept the old ideas and the old ways anymore. I'm not going to accept it, but they're, but they're going to do something about it. So um, I'm going to enjoy seeing what they do in the next kind of four or five years, because based on what they've done over the last four or five years or the last kind of 10 years, holy Jesus, you know? I cannot see a situation in future after all this has, has died down where we're willing to accept 2,000 euros a month to rent somebody's chalet shed yeah. in the back of their in their back garden. It's only been like what three years, two two three years. It seems longer, but it's only been kind of three years since the uh, well, four years actually. Sorry, since the last major right to water kind of uh, rallies of a hundred thousand people. Now I'm not saying I'm certainly not putting forth right to water as some kind of uh, template or something that can be just like kicked into play again. But what it does show is that when Irish people and when this kind of generation feel that they're not getting their like fair deal or feel that they're being done by, they will go to the streets, they will march and they will protest and they'll win and they've done all these things. The thing that scared the establishment more about kind of a right to war and the reason why I think they didn't just compromise earlier was that they knew that if they showed Irish people that protest works, the genie is out of the bottle. That's what really scared them. And despite their best efforts, including Alan Kelly, who's now, like, it's incredible, he's leader of the Labour Party, Mr. Mr. Con Irish Water himself. The Irish people were shown that not only does protest work, but they can win. So that's like... Like, like you can't buy that. Once, once, once people get a taste of wins, it's hard. It's hard then for them to accept kind of defeat. Once they get used to saying that, you know, we were told that no abortion legislation would ever pass in Ireland. You know, it's it's there now, or that equal marriage would never pass in a you know in a referendum and a sale through, um, or that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would would never be forced into uh, merging, uh, which is what's happening as we're speaking. So these are definitely different times. There's a generation out there that has its own ideas and its own kind of motivations and will not listen to anyone else. Thank you very much. So, yeah, I mean, that that definitely gives me hope. I'll do what I can to kind of feed into that by making kind of arguments around where I think, how I think power works in this country, where it's strong, where it's weak in terms of strategies and, 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 and tactics kind of going forward, using history as a weapon, as a tool, which is what history should be used for. Yeah, so yeah, so we see what happens. It's certainly going to be interesting. I, I certainly don't see Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Greens, if you go in, getting an easy ride for any kind of austerity kind of going forward, and they better deliver on housing or there will be feet on the street no doubt about it uh, connor what are your thoughts about politics european politics of bailouts and corona bonds to deal with the aftermath of this health crisis well i mean like it's a really kind of valid question because i mean here we go again it's the eu it's facing well it's, it's eurozone facing an existential kind of crisis and it's kind of messed it up again I, I don't know how much longer you can keep on dropping the ball on these issues. Like, I don't think the euro as a currency is going to break up anytime soon, but it needs to reconcile the tensions that are there between its outlandish, ridiculous, autocratic rules around like monetary policy and, and the fiscal policy and the actual real-world needs of, of climate action, COVID-19, 
and also dealing with um with with over 10 12 years of uh, vicious and nasty austerity all across europe so in terms of italy in terms of spain in terms of portugal france even and ireland that this will be a very interesting time going forward for the euro i don't like i'm loath to say it's a make or break moment for the euro because the euro has been in crisis since uh, since day one and it's still here so there's something there has to be something robust about it if it keeps on getting through every single kind of crisis so it, it'll probably get through on this one as well but if if it does not learn to compromise on those ridiculous kind of fiscal rules it will be more weakened rather than strengthened i mean i think that's for sure that was really interesting thank you very much connor that okay. was Con that was dr connor mccabe and i think we forgot to mention uh connor's latest book money from cork university press is available online and his other book that was probably the main aspect of our talk the last time since the father really really a fantastic book uh, well worth reading if anyone ever gets a chance and the episode that we did with connor before was episode 10 of the irish history show and that's available on our website irishhistoryshow.ie if you'd like to follow us on twitter we're at irish history pod or if you want to follow us on facebook we're facebook.com forward slash the irish history show and if you get a chance please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, thank you very much for listening.